Thank you to Stuart and to Ryan for uh, leading us through the Word of God over the course of the last few weeks. We have been in John chapter 2, they took us through, and then on into John chapter 3. And this morning we are looking at the closing verses of John chapter 3. This is a pivotal point in John's Gospel. The purpose of John's Gospel is given to us in the text. We've looked at it several times in John 20, verse 31, where John says, This is why I wrote these things. These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So his purpose is to lead us to believe. His purpose is to show us Jesus Christ and to demonstrate what Jesus did in his earthly ministry to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. These first three chapters serve as sort of the introduction to telling of those signs. These first three chapters establish the foundation on which we go forward in looking at the life of Christ because these first three chapters really focus in on establishing the veracity, the, the truthfulness, and the authority of Jesus Christ. If we are to be drawn to his gospel, if we are to be drawn in faith to believe in Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ, we must first see that his teaching is true and that it is authoritative. Uh, the, that Jesus Christ can actually speak to us about matters, profound matters of life and death and eternity and judgment and sin and forgiveness. Those are the, the, the issues that speak to questions about why we are here, what, what we are here for, what life looks like after this life, what we face when death occurs. And for Jesus Christ to be able to speak to these things, to call us to himself in belief in these things, one of the things John sees fit to do first is to cause us to see that he is who he says he is, and he is perfectly right and perfectly true, and his word can be trusted. He speaks with authority about matters of eternal life, and the reason that he does so is because he is God. Because ultimately, if it comes to matters of life and death and eternity and forgiveness and sin and condemnation, it's one thing to, to listen to a, a teacher or a philosopher who has some thoughts on that, but if we're going to come to certainty with that, it must come from God, from our Maker. And that is what Jesus Christ brings to us. Jesus cannot be merely a prophet or an eloquent speaker or some wise philosopher. He must be God. And so when we go ahead next week in John chapter 4 and we see Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman, one of the things she'll say to him is, listen, we're waiting for Messiah because Messiah will tell us all things. And his response to her is, I who speak to you am he. It's a pretty dramatic response. He's going to tell us everything we need to know. Right, I'm, I'm the one. I'm that one that you're looking for. That's a remarkably bold statement. Later in John chapter 4, the story of the governing official whose son is dying at home, and he comes to Jesus and he pleads with Jesus, come, come to my home and heal my son. And Jesus, without ever going near the boy, says, go, your son will live. The child is healed. It's a remarkable account of the power of Jesus Christ. See Jesus go up to a man who has been paralyzed for nearly 40 years and say, get up, take your bed, and walk. And immediately the man will rise to his feet and walk. All of these things are signs that John is putting before us that continue to 
to show us who Jesus is. But all that he's doing here at the beginning is to say, believe Jesus. Know who Jesus is. Know who he claims to be and believe in him. Jesus is God in flesh and he has truly come to save sinners from the just wrath of God. So before laying out the signs, the case, if you will, for belief in Jesus Christ, John lays down this foundation. Jesus is perfectly truthful, and he is fully authoritative. He can speak to these things. The idea is to get us so that by the time we finish chapter 3, we are eager to go forward and to see what does Jesus do. You and I generally approach the Gospel of John Probably with some background, we've probably read it before, we know some of the stories before, but for John's first-time readers, this foundation is pivotal in saying, now that you know who he claims to be and that he is authoritative and trustworthy, read about his life. Now be confronted with this truth about who Jesus is. And so this last part of chapter 3 is kind of a transition, if you will. It moves from the last time that we hear from a guy named John the Baptist to a full spotlight on Jesus Christ. The transition moves from this one who was a prophet called by God to have a particular ministry of preparing the first century world for the coming of the Messiah. So we're going to see John the Baptist and hear his final words as recorded in John at least. And we will move from seeing him complete his task, faithfully do the work that God has called him to do, to then John the writer will transition and put the light entirely on Jesus Christ, the authority, the supremacy, the truthfulness and power of Jesus Christ. And so I want to put before you the challenge of what we will see today is to finish well and to start with Jesus. Finish well and start with Jesus, and you'll see that unfold as we walk through the text. But if you look at verse 22, John 3, verse 22, and we'll start there. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So some time has passed. When we left off last week, we were seeing Jesus interact with Nicodemus. Prior to that, it was the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. John has, in some sense, been pretty careful in his chronology to say the next day and and sort of walk us through those opening weeks of ministry. This one, he's a little more vague, which leads us to believe that this is probably a period of time that has passed, maybe several weeks or so, because all it says in verse 22 is after this. So at some point after this, Jesus and his disciples leave the city of Jerusalem and go out into more rural area, outside of Jerusalem, somewhat of wilderness area, and they begin to administer a baptism in the name of Jesus. The the disciples are carrying out the baptism in the name of Jesus, doing what John the Baptist had been doing in terms of baptism. 
We know that John described his baptism as a baptism of repentance, as a baptism of turning from sin. We see that in the act of the, the, the immersing someone in water. It is a, a dying to something. It is a laying down to something, a turning from something. Uh, in, in that sense, both John's baptism and Jesus' baptism are looking forward toward that which will bring life and forgiveness, that which that will meet that repentance with indeed a, a change of heart. We, as we've celebrated this morning, have the privilege of looking back with the full knowledge that not only is there a death to sin, but there is a resurrection to new life in union with Christ. That's what's being symbolized, is that joining with Christ in his death and resurrection. The reality, though, that we see here is the fact that, that Jesus is now overseeing this baptism has created some hard feelings, if you will, for John the Baptist's followers. John was doing this first. John is the one that the crowds first came out to and the religious leaders first came out to inquire about. John sort of had a corner on the market, if you will, on this act of baptism. And now they're a little troubled by all of this. There's some ill will here because now this other teacher who came to John is now going out and baptizing. On top of all this, you have the statement in verse 25 that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Somewhere in the course of this, there's this debate, discussion. It doesn't really elaborate much on it, on, on purification. Old Testament, we go back to the Old Testament law, and there was a, a number of ceremonial washings that are prescribed. Largely, it is God, at least in, in, in one part, um, providing for the hygiene of the Israelites. Some of that washing is simply to protect them from disease and death. They've come in, when you've come in contact with things, you are to wash. However, over time, the Jewish religious leaders take those purification acts and turn them into sort of favor-seeking acts. Uh, you know, you'd you be purified in a certain way, or the more purification you get, or the right kind of purification. It's what, it's what man does with religion. We turn it into something man-centered. And so this purification thing now becomes a question of how purified one can be by these washings. Presumably, that's something that went into the debate here. It, it's unexplained to us, but presumably there's some discussion over John's baptism, whether or not it's effective and purifying. And, and the fact that this prompts this sort of aggravation over Jesus's baptism would lead one to believe that perhaps this Jew is saying, well, what about that other baptism? Maybe, maybe what Jesus is doing, maybe that's more effective than what your, your rabbi is doing. Whatever the case the text says that they, they go to John. And the issue they bring up is not so much the purification, but it is this, what's going on here? Why is it that all the crowds that were coming to you now are going to Jesus? He came to you for baptism. Now they're going to him, and, and it seems like nobody is coming to you anymore. And they are grieved, they think, on John's behalf because the crowds are shrinking. To which John's response, when he begins this in verse 27, talking about a, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven, what he essentially says in this passage is, guys, I told you this was going to happen. This is working according to plan. This is exactly by design that I was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah, that I have, I have carried out that task. And he is, in a sense, reminding them when he talks about starting to make this differentiation between that which comes from above and that which is from the earth, is saying, listen, he's the Christ. 
He is God. He is the sent one. He is the one that, that people should be focusing on. I'm just, I'm just a man. I'm a servant who was given a mission. I was simply sent to point to him. And then he uses this illustration, goes to a wedding, and says, think about the best man at the wedding. The best man's job is to make sure everything goes well for the groom, but largely to stay unseen other than to be there to support and encourage his friend. There's, there's scholars who say that cultural law, ancient law from this same period of time, not, not seen in scripture but in other texts, would say that, that the best man was prohibited from ever marrying the bride. That may sound odd to us, but in a culture where people died young, there was questions about who she could marry then after that, who would care for her, particularly in this culture. And so those, those rules are set up to prohibit the best man from competing with the groom in any way. His job is to make sure that everything from the groom's perspective goes well, that the groom comes for his bride, and that the ceremony and the feast that follows, that it is a wonderful, joyous celebration. The only time the best man might be heard is perhaps before the ceremony when he is giving directions to how things should work and what people should do and how he can make everything just right. But when, when the groom comes for the bride, his job is to step off the stage and to stand back and just be full of joy. He watches the groom take the bride, and he smiles at all that proceeds from there. And, and, and he just happily fades back and leaves the stage. John the Baptist is saying to his followers, don't you see? That's, that's me. I'm not here to compete with Jesus Christ. I'm not here to try to win his bride. God has sent his Messiah for his bride to come for his people. My job has been to go before and to tell the bride, the groom is coming. Prepare the way. He's coming. And now that he's here, and now that they are rushing to him, then my joy is full. That's the happiest I could possibly be because that's, that, that just shows that what God gave me to do is actually now even bearing fruit. And I am delighted to step back. Paul gives us kind of a similar example of this at the end of his ministry when he writes 2 Timothy. It's, it's, it's coming down to the end. He's been imprisoned it has been difficult. There's times that we see in Paul's writings even that sense of, of almost abandonment from at least other human friends, sources around him. And in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And he goes on to say he's now looking forward to what is stored up and awaiting for him in heaven. What a wonderful place to be at which is exactly where John the Baptist was at, to say, listen, guys, don't, don't try to make more of me. I am really thrilled at where I am because God gave me a chance to exalt Christ and to, to proclaim Christ, and I've done that, and people have responded by God's grace, and that's what's happening. And I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, thankful by, for, to God for being able to be used in some way. And now it's, it's, it's winding down. And the crowds are dwindling. And John's not bothered by that. Because in fact, as he says to his disciples, my, my joy is complete. The picture is my, my joy is like if you put it in a cup, it's hit the top and it's overflowing. What, what more could I want than that people would love Jesus and, and follow after him and learn from him? 
So let me ask you, pause here for a second. How about you? Where are you looking for that, that highest joy? How are you seeking that, that greatest fulfillment and contentment, that sort of full cup experience of joy? If for some reason somehow you, you were told, listen, 2017 is it for you. Once 2017 comes to a close, somewhere in there, your, your life comes to a close. Would you be able to be like John and say, my joy is complete? Not perfect. Haven't done everything perfectly. Can look back and, and I, can, I can see the sin in glaring ways. But I can also see that God somehow in his grace used me along the way. Can you say that? Can you look at that and go, fulfilled, complete, finishing well, glad where I am. Lord, you can take me now because it's okay because I've, I've sought to do what you've called me to do. Especially if, if it's in a season of decline. If it's in a season of maybe physical weakness or whatever it is, in, in some way significance is waning. People aren't coming to you maybe like they once were. They're not looking to you like they once were. You're not, you're not important like you once thought you were. Could you still at that point say, my joy is complete? Because it's not about me being important and being significant. It's about Christ being important and significant. And to whatever degree that happened through my life, I am able to go, perfect. I, I, can, I can leave the stage and walk away with a glad heart. Leon Morris, the commentator, writes, It's not particularly easy in this world to gather followers about one for a serious purpose. But when they've gathered, it's infinitely harder to detach them and firmly insist that they go after another. There's two sides to that. One is once people say, this is someone we're following, they don't necessarily want to go in another direction. But the other side of that is, is as human beings, we're not always all that good at seeking to divert attention from ourselves and, and intentionally focus on putting attention on other people. There's, there's, there's something in our, 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 our hearts that still craves some attention, some recognition. And so it's not always the easiest thing to say, no, no, you, you need to focus on in this direction, on this person. You need to focus on Christ, not on me. That's where John is. He is content at having been faithful, having run the race, knowing that he's coming near the end. And the wonder in all this, too, is, is John, doesn't, John doesn't get a retirement party. You know, Jesus doesn't call the crowds around and say, let's, let's, let's give this guy a hand, huh? He's done a great job. There's no standing ovation. All it is for John is just this sort of fading. The, the crowds are dwindling and they're going to Jesus and less and less people are coming to him. And, and we know the end of the story for John. John, the apostle writer, alluded to it when he says this all happened before John ended up in prison because John will end up in prison and ultimately beheaded. And even there, we'll see, it, it, as we look at some of the other gospel accounts, it just talks about some of the struggles John had even there in prison, just making sure that, is this all right? And I said, I, was everything what I, what I thought it was? Because it's kind of a, from a human perspective, it's kind of a rough way to go out. And yet he is faithful to the end to stand in the court of a godless king and still preach truth and still preach the holiness of God in the presence of the king who ultimately will order his execution. He's content to be faithful 
to his calling. He is content because he sees himself as a man under orders. And that's why in verse 28, he says, you, you, you know this, you bear witness. I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. All of you that, that serve in the military, you know what that is. You've been sent. You've been ordered. You, you know that when you are given directions, that is what you do. John is content and delighted to be a man under orders. To say, this is where God has me. I am happy to be right in this lane pleasing him, being faithful with whatever he's gifted me to do, whatever he's skilled me to do. And that's as believers, that's the place we should long for is that sense of contentment and doing what God has gifted us to do. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about when it talks about spiritual gifts, that he's given differing gifts to different people, varying degrees of skills and abilities that, that, that God gives to us. But then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 12 and he says, but it's all, it's all under the, the control of the same spirit. It's all the same Lord that, that, that we are serving. It's all the same God who is over the church. And so, yeah, we're, we're all doing different tasks, and, and, and some may seem more noticeable or different or whatever than others. Just be, be content that God has, has put you in a place and said, just serve faithfully here. Just, just follow through and find your ultimate joy in striving for that day when you stand in his presence and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here in John chapter 3, we, we see just in this short passage, John could have been drawn into this debate over purification. Oh, let's, let's wrestle through on this one. John could have been sidetracked by this popularity contest, and his reaction is, no, no, just focus on Jesus. Don't, don't make this about me. What are, the, what are the things, trivial or otherwise, that that distract, that tempt you to, to be sidetracked. There's, there's responsibilities we have in life, work. And, and, and we saw over the summer in Ecclesiastes, there's a place for refreshment and, 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 and enjoyment. But I'm, I'm talking about what are the things that, that, that tend to distract us from that focus on exalting Christ and, and sharing Christ. What are the things that, that seem to occupy our time? And, and sidetrack us from this glorious task of being able to, like John, say, listen, I just, I just want to be where God wants me to be and doing what God wants me to do, and I, I just want to be faithful at that. And he'll, he'll do the rest. I can rest in that. He's ready to leave the stage, and he concludes by saying, he must increase and I must decrease. May God help you and I to have that, that same sense, to finish well, to be desirous of whatever time is left from here, November 2017, to whenever he calls us home, that we would be good stewards with that time, that we would, as Moses writes in the Psalms, teach us to number our days aright, that we would gain a heart of wisdom, that we would use time well. Here comes the transition, verse 31. This, this would appear to be now John the Apostle speaking. We've, we've finished with John the Baptist, and now John the Apostle sort of concluding the introduction at this point, says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. Let me stop there. 
Here's the transition. This whole section before has been this discussion between John the Baptist and his disciples over them wrestling with John's role and John clarifying for them, no, 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 I'm just here to finish well and to serve God. And now John the Apostle, as he's writing this, now concludes his introduction by shifting entirely. It's as if now John the Baptist, with that last statement, he must increase and I must decrease, He's now walked off the stage, and the spotlight now is, is to be aimed fully on Jesus Christ. And, and, and John the Apostle now wants us to focus in on Jesus. And he starts by sort of bouncing off something that he quoted from John saying, when John said in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Well, then when John the Apostle does this closing section, he offers sort of a contrast, bouncing off that. You and I are servants like John. We are, we are given direction, if you will, through the word of God. We are given direction from heaven. Our assignments come from heaven in the sense that they come from God. But what his point is here now in this transition is to say, now we're going to talk about one who doesn't simply get a mission from heaven. This is the one who is from heaven. John is talking from the perspective of, listen, I'm just grateful that the God of heaven gave me something to do. Verse 31 says, he who comes from heaven is above all. Now, it's, now the focus is on the one who himself starts in heaven in the first place and comes from there. And so in the, the closing verses of this transitional part of, of John's introduction, he is now going to, to take us to look at Jesus and, and I think show us Three things in these last few verses about Jesus that will carry us through the rest of the book. His supremacy, his truthfulness, and his power. Supremacy starts right at the beginning when he says, he, he who comes from above is above all. The supremacy of Jesus is seen in his origin. He is from heaven. We cannot relate to being from heaven. Jesus is. We saw this here in verse 31. We saw this last week in John 3.16 that God sent his son, sent him forth from heaven, that God gave his son into the world. You and I and John the Baptist are earthbound creatures. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then you share that hope that you will one day ascend to heaven and see the glories of heaven, but we are earthbound creatures. We have a birth certificate that lists a town somewhere where we started from. That's where our origin is. Jesus, it says, is from above. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all, John says. First place he's establishing the supremacy of Jesus is by his origin. He's from heaven. Top that. <laughs> Next thing is just the person of who Jesus is. He's already begun to describe him here. Later on, he's going to refer to him in verse 35 as the son of God and the giver of eternal life. John doesn't as much define the person entirely here because he's been doing that for three chapters, going all the way back to John chapter 1 when he begins his book by saying, in the beginning was the, the word, right? His identification of Jesus starts at the very beginning by what we looked at in John chapter 1 by him teaching us that Jesus is the pre-existent God. That when he, he earth came into being, that when creation came into being, Jesus already was. In fact, John 1.3 says all things came into being through him. It, it all has its roots in this one who was fully God and then would become fully man. So he is from heaven, but also he is God, John has already taught us in this introduction. The, the other point in, in terms of uh, 
Christ's supremacy is just what he talks here about the, the proximity Jesus has to the Father or the relationship he has to the Father. He says in this passage that he is near to the Father. He is sent by the Father. He is loved by the Father. Verse 35 sort of summarizes that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That phrase, all things, comes up several times in John. We talked about it already in John 1.3. All things came into being through him. Uh, we talked about it with the Samaritan woman when she says when the Messiah comes, he will teach all things that we need to know. Jesus uses it later in John 13, 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. It's a phrase that, that has deep meaning to it and is carried on elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul uses it in his writings. Echoes the same sort of theme in Ephesians 1. And he speaks of God after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God the Father seating Jesus Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Paul reiterates that in Colossians 1.17. Jesus is before, as in a head dove, over all things, and in him, everything, all things, hold together. And so the point of John 3.35, when it says the Father who loves the Son, who is near to the Son, who sent the Son, when it says he has given all things into his hand, it is the ultimate statement of authority. It is... This is a weak human example, but if you ever, you know, if your dad or your mom owned a business... And you got to go there as a kid and, and, and they treated you, you know, royally that here's, here's my, my son or my daughter and, and, and maybe let you do something. And you felt like you were, because you were right there with the owner, you were right there with the boss and you were kind of something special. Well, this goes beyond that. This is God the Father saying to his son, all authority is yours. You have dominion over all things, which is going to become crucial to what he's going to say here in just a moment when we get to verse 36. Uh, but it is a statement of supremacy. Another thing, just again, that I think John wants us to see here is the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. He talks about that speaking. And the one who's of earth, who speaks in an earthly way, he who comes from heaven is above all, verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He's talking about Jesus now, and he, he's saying no one in, in, in a little bit of a hyperbolic sense, because he says in verse 33, there are those who receive his testimony, and it says whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. If there's one more thing that John wants us to remember when we go forward is that Jesus is utterly truthful, because he is not an ordinary teacher who, no matter how much they rely on the authority of the word, always is still an ordinary teacher that's bound by their own presumptions and assumptions and sin and, and, and still is prone to error. Jesus speaks as God because he is God. And everything he says can be held to the test, and it is true. Remember, again, he starts the book by saying, calling Jesus the word, the, the fullest clearest expression of who God is, and now he comes back in this introduction to say that his words, for he whom God has sent, utters the words of God. Coming back to again reminding us that everything he says is truth. He, he's not just being told to say this, but he actually comes from heaven and has seen God, and, and, and he is speaking now the words of God. 
to us. And so it's truthful. And the last element in this, we are to go forward in John's gospel understanding the supremacy of Christ above all things, the truthfulness of Christ. He speaks the words of God. And then lastly in this section, there is reference to the undeniable matchless power of Christ. Because verse 34, again speaking of the Father, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus Christ is empowered by the Spirit of God. He is fully man, and yet he is empowered by the the Spirit of God in a way that no other man can even begin to conceive of. John the Baptist and all of the prophets, it speaks of it at various points, are filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1 talks about John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit. The the difference there, though, is John the Baptist is, is a man. And so he's still subject to limitations, he still wears out, and he's still uh, bound by sin and, and just his own nature and his own weaknesses. And so despite the limitless power of the Spirit, the vessel is still fallen, is still frail and fallen in this world. Jesus Christ is God. And so when the Father gives to him the fullness of his Spirit, he is now fully given the limitless divine power of God in a sinless, perfect body, and, and there is nothing, then, that Jesus cannot do according to the will of God. He has unlimited power, which, which we need to understand this, this giving of the Spirit without measure, for when we come to John chapter 11, and Jesus stands in front of the tomb of a corpse that's been in there for three days rotting, and says, Lazarus, come out! And a dead man begins to breathe again and walks out of the tomb. And the temptation from the skeptics and the world is to go, that's crazy. <laughs> How does that happen? And he's, John's set us up for this to say, listen, this is not an ordinary teacher. This is God in flesh, empowered with God's spirit in a way that you have never before seen. And he is uniquely powerful, uniquely supreme, uniquely truthful. All of this, then, is preparatory. It's all meant to lay the foundation, to make us put ourselves in the shoes, even temporarily, of of being a first-time reader of John's gospel. And we should, at this point, be eagerly saying, okay, tell me more about this guy. What, What did he do? What did he teach? What does his life look like? Because what John has tried to do in this introduction is to say, listen, This is not just some biography here like the kind you might be used to reading. This is not just some story of some heroic guy who did some great things. This is the Son of God sent from heaven, empowered by the Spirit, perfect, truthful, right, just, supreme over all things. You better watch what he does, and you better listen to what he says, because this is who he is. And John has to do that, because ultimately what John will say next is, listen, Your life depends on this. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so for the skeptic who, after all of that, says, okay, that's all great. That's good for your religion. That's interesting what you believe about Jesus. John brings it all right back to home. After verses 31 through 35 are filled with the he and him pronouns. He, him, his, right? It's he who comes, he who speaks, he bears witness, um, his testimony, he whom God has sent, and so on. The Father loves the Son, given all things into his hands. It's all about 
Christ. It's all about him. And then all of a sudden in verse 36, he says, now what about you? Because whoever believes in him has life, and whoever disobeys him is under God's wrath. John says, listen, I'm urging you to understand who Jesus is because all of humanity divides on responding to him. All of humanity faces the question of, so now what? Now that Jesus is proclaimed as supreme, as the, the sovereign savior, as the one who has given his life, then you either have people who are believing in Jesus Christ and are trusting him, and receiving eternal life and the forgiveness of their sins. They are believing that he came and he died and rose for them, and they are trusting in him. Or it says they are disobeying him, which means they are not believing. They are rejecting him. They are taking what Jesus says and saying, meh, no, not sold on that. And he says those who are disobeying Jesus will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. If Jesus is fully God, he's perfectly true. If Jesus is supreme over all creation, and if Jesus has the power to give life and to condemn to death, then we must all ultimately answer to the question of how do you respond to Jesus? What will you do? And that's why John is imploring us to read on, but imploring us with a warning that says, listen, this is, again, not just an ordinary biography that you read and say, well, that was moving. That was a great story. His point in taking us and opening us into this biography is to say, listen, your response to this will determine your eternal destiny. Your life going forward will pivot on what you do with him. And he reduces the matter down to the simplest of terms. Either acknowledge Jesus for who he says he is, as the Savior who gave his life for you and rose from the dead, or you reject him. In which case, he says, you remain condemned. He's simply pointing out the same theological truth Stuart was talking about last week when he was talking about this, this judgment portion that we see back in John 3. It's, it's not a, a, a new sort of judgment on man. The fact is we all come into life as enemies of God. We all come in in a state of hostility to God because we all come into life with the same sort of seeds of Adam and Eve that say, I want to run my own show. I want to be God. I, I want to decide what's best for me. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to be told what to do. I mean, we see that from our littlest children, those adorable little darlings who want to do what they want to do right from the get-go, right? And, and that's the state we are in. And God is just. Our creator calls us to worship him and to bow before him. And if we refuse to do that, then his just wrath remains on us. We remain in that state of condemnation. There's simply no change apart from his saving grace. Ephesians 2.3, speaking of believers, says, We all were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a condition in which we are born, deserving objects of the wrath of God apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. It is only by, as John will show us again and again and again through this book, it is only by running to Jesus. It is only by saying, Rabbi, there's something here that, that I don't understand, but I am throwing my life in with you. I am trusting you. I am following you. Because apart from you, I, I'm lost. It's only by trusting fully in Jesus and believing in his death and resurrection that there is salvation from the wrath of God. 
And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then here's where I would implore you this morning, I think faithfully to the text, and that is start with Jesus. In your relationships, in your friendships, in whatever opportunities God gives you, be faithful to take those times to, to start with Jesus, to exalt Jesus, to take the one who is supreme, who has rescued you, and proclaim him and exalt him by the way you live, by how you talk, by the testimony you share. Allow all of that to exalt Jesus. Start with Jesus and finish well. Finish well. Know that from whatever time God gives you, there's an opportunity to continue to serve and to ask God to just use you in whatever way he sees fit. You may feel like you are at the most broken point in your life and, in, and your circumstances may feel like garbage. I don't, I don't think John the Baptist at that moment, in terms of circumstances, were, were, were perfect. But the attitude was, listen, Lord, use me here. Help me to be faithful to you here. In the midst of whatever brokenness, in the midst of whatever trial this is, just help me to respond in a way that I would exalt Christ by what people see and hear from me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Jesus Christ as given to us in this gospel. Thank you for reminding us again of the greatness of our Savior. Father, forgive us. We are, we are a people prone to those trivial distractions. We are a people that can be sidetracked sometimes by some of the, the silliest, most foolish things. Father, forgive us for when we get so earthbound, we get caught up and, and lose sight of the glory of our Savior and the hope that we have in Christ and the, the reality that our time here is going by so fast. Help us to seize the, the fleeting time that we have to exalt Jesus Christ, to give you thanks for sending your Son, to in gratitude embrace the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, filling us and, and empowering us to walk after Jesus Christ and to strive to be like him in what we say and do. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is thinking about Jesus but not trusting in Jesus, who is wondering about what all this means, I pray that this day you would, would open their eyes to see that they are lost without him, that we are by nature sinners in need of a Savior outside of ourselves, that we cannot come to you with a collection of works. John the Baptist wasn't seeking to come to you with his performance. Paul wasn't bragging about the race he'd run thinking that that would somehow earn him credit with you. The belief that's taught again and again in Scripture is we, we lay all of that aside and come to you and say we rely fully on Christ and what he has done in his death and resurrection. I pray that this day, if there's anyone here in need of trusting in Jesus Christ, that this would be the day that you would call them and draw them to yourself, that whoever believes in him would have life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.